Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. Thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even those days wherein Antipas was a faithful martyr, who was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will he give to eat of the hidden manna, will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. The title of the message tonight is The Church of Toleration. Church of Toleration. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for the opportunity we have to open your precious word. I pray tonight as we look into the word of God and as we consider this passage of scripture and this church that once stood even some who stood faithful unto death. Father, as we consider the truths that are taught here and the compromise that's taking place, I pray that you help us to be warned and beware, be wise concerning the encroaches of the world and its philosophies. So just help us, strengthen us in our resolve to be faithful until our Lord comes for us, we do pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> the word Pergamos, so the name Pergamos is interesting in itself. It means married or high tower. Both those things are taught or are evident in this church. What you have here, I believe, is a church that's married to the world. They succumb to the pressures of the world and adopted its philosophies. And so they're, they're pictured as married to the world. And this is, I think, really the beginnings of the Roman Catholic religious system, as we'll see in a minute. But anyway, I want to start tonight. First of all, uh, he addresses them as the sharp sword. In verse 12, it says, To the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. The sharp sword with two edges is referred to in several places in the scripture. For example, in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 17, we see very clearly what this sharp sword is, and that is really what it is carried out to be throughout the rest of the Bible in other places uh, in the New Testament. It says, And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now, I heard a Marine say one time that sword there is a, is a, is a sword with two edges. And it cuts both ways, any way, you, any way you, you, you use it. So it's the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And the Bible tells us, and, it, and, and there's two things that this sword does. Uh, first of all, it separates, it divides, 
It's also a source of judgment. In Hebrews chapter 4 and verses 12, verse 12 and 13, we, we see it's used to divide or to separate. For the word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing of sunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So he's reminding this church at Pergamos, I'm, you know, the sharp sword. I'm one half the sharp sword with two edges. And I divide asunder or, you know, divide or separate. You know, the word of God examines, it searches our hearts, our thoughts, and our intents. And it separates them. All of us have thoughts and intents that are good. Do we not? And all of us have thoughts and intents, sometimes that are not good. And it's the word of God that gives us the discernment to divide the two. To know what is a good thought or good intent and what is an evil thought or an evil intent. You know, it can judge, you know, it can judge our motives. It judges our it has the capacity to judge our motives. What is my plan? What is my purpose behind all this? You know, sometimes, like a wicked husband, I judge my wife's motives. That's not right. I shouldn't do that. But woe is me, I do sometimes. Now, you can all look pious if you want to, but I'm sure all of you have done the same thing. Ah, you know, sometimes we do that. But, but, and, but we can't know, you know, we are not to judge motives. That is judging. But the Word of God can. It, it can judge our motives, you know, our attitudes, all those things. And so it can separate out the two. It gives us discernment between what is right and what is not right. And it separates the two. Notice it's interesting here that it says, dividing of the soul and spirit, deciding the son of the soul and spirit. You know, that which has to do with the soul often deals with your emotions. And many times our emotions have wrong ideas or wrong reactions. We're not supposed to, we're not supposed to be guided by our emotions, but by the Spirit, or the principles of the Word of God, controlled by the Spirit, led of the Spirit. And so the, the, the Word of God gives us discernment to know the difference. So it separates. But that sword is also a sword of judgment. In verse 12, it says, it hath a sharp sword with two edges. And then in verse 16, it says, Repent. Or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Now he's talking here about his church. And he said, I'm going to come and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. The word of God is going to fight against. And he's talking here, of course, he's talking about these doctrine of Balaam's and the doctrine of Nicolaitans, which have come into this church. So I'm going to fight against him. And he'll do it with the sword of his mouth, with the word of God. That's how we fight. Of course, Revelation 19.15 again says, And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, 
that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. See, that, that sword, again, it, 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 it divides, it separates, and it also is a source of judgment. The word of God. You know, Isaiah, in Isaiah 49, 2 said this, And he hath made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand hath he hid me, and made me a polished shaft, and his quiver hath, in his quiver hath he hid me. He hath made my mouth like a sharp sword. You know, you can, your mouth can be an instrument like a sword. But, it's, but we need to consider this seriously. How does one handle a sword? I mean, if, if I had a sword in my hand, I might just go... Just carelessly and recklessly. You know, some people take the sword, some pastors take the sword and beat their people to pieces. You know, God compares his people to sheep. Now, I haven't been around sheep much. About a year of my farming experience, I had a little experience with sheep. Now, I've been around goats more than sheep. And goats you can kick, hit over the head with a two-by-four. Nathan knows about that experience. Billy Goat had him penned up against the pen when he was a little boy. And uh, But anyway, you know, you can, you can do all kinds of things to a goat. And, I mean, you can drop him off the deck eight feet down, and he'll just land on his feet and run off. I'm not kidding you. I mean, you can turn him upside down and drop him, and he'll land on his feet. Boys could tell you from experience. You do that to sheep, he's going to end up with a broken leg or something. Seriously. Injured. We can be caustic and careless with the sword and cut people up. There's an interesting verse in Matthew 12, verse 20, where it says about the Lord Jesus, A bruised reed shall he not break, and smoking flax shall he not quench, so he send forth judgment unto victory. You know, Jesus was very compassionate with the multitudes. I mean, he loved the rich young ruler. He didn't keep the truth from him, but he didn't beat him with it either. Now, he was very direct and blunt with the Pharisees. Again, out of compassion. You know, some people, I remember there was a man in Maine. He was, he was as blunt as any man I've ever met in my life. And some people say, I can you stand him. It, it was almost fun to me because I just give it right back to him. He criticized me one day. I was driving a little, a small car. And he said, hmm, must not think much of your wife. Put your wife in a little rattle trap like that. Going to get run over by a truck. You know, he'd buy these great big things. And, and you know, and he'd spend money which he didn't have. And I, and I simply said, well, you know, I, my wife likes a little security of some money in the savings account. 
because his wife always worried about it because he didn't save any money. Yeah. Uh, you, know, you, you have to know how to answer people. And Jesus knew how to do that. But a bruised reed would he not break. When somebody's down and out, don't kick him the rest of the way down. That's the idea. You know, if people do refuse instruction, then they choose their own judgment. And you know, Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 2.16, To the one we are the savor of death unto death, and to the other the savor of life unto life. And who is sufficient for these things? You know, sometimes it gets in my competitive nature to really want to just tell some of these people off. Well, what good would that do? To tell them, you know, it just plainly, that, that uh, you know, what you're doing is destroying yourself. But we have to, we have to, we have to handle the sword carefully. And of course, the message here to this church is, you know, I'm in your midst, and you need to heed the word of God. It's for your blessing and edification, or it will be for your judgment. And so, the sharp sword. Secondly, I want you to notice he knows our dwelling place. The Lord knows our dwelling place. He says in verse 13, I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. And thou holdest fast my name, not denied my faith, even those days where an Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. Times. He says this, where Satan's seat is, and then where Satan dwelleth. In other words, so he knows our dwelling place, or he knows our circumstances, and he refers to it here, the place of Pergamos, as Satan's seat. The Greek word is, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, because I didn't look up pronunciation, but it's spelled throne instead of an E, an O, at the end of it, like a throne. It, the word seat here means a tribunal or bench. So it speaks of a, of a place of power or rule. So they were in, it's obvious then, that they were in a satanic stronghold. Pergamos was a satanic stronghold, a place of satanic headquarters, you might say. Pergamos was a capital city of that part of the world with temples. There were four temples, Greek temples there, four of the greatest Greek temp, uh, temples to the greatest Greek, Greek gods. Gods of drama, art, war, healing, uh, with medical wards where harmless snakes slithered on the ground. And the sick would come and sleep in the sanctuary of that temple and hopefully a snake would touch them and then they would be healed. Of course, these temples, as in most cities in that day, included houses of prostitution, which was legal and accepted as normal in those days. I was going to bring, I didn't. But anyway, it was accepted at normal. One of the Greek writers talked about how you know, every, men had their prostitutions for satisfaction. They had their, their um, uh, concubines for other things, and then they had a wife for procreation and the guardian of the home. And they write that like, that's normal life. And that was normal life in the Greek world for men. So this is the... This is the place where this church 
dwells. This is their home. It reminds us that Satan is the god of this world. You know, the kingdoms of this world really belong to him. You know, Revelation eleven fifteen says, The seven angels sounded, there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And so, you know, we live in a world whose God is He's blind to the minds of them that believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel should shine unto him. So, you know, so just as Pergamos was full of allurements and temptations which drowned men in destruction and perdition, our world is also and more accessible. There's all kinds of vice accessible today, easily accessible. Uh, Vulgar cursing, nakedness, fornication, and love of money is mainstream in our society. Here's something that I, you know, really kind of hit home with me just recently. The vulgarity of politicians. That are work guys who lost to Ted Cruz by just a little bit. You know, every other word it seemed out of his mouth in his concession speech was a four-letter word. Of the most vulgar thing. And the news media didn't even bleep them out. Of course, a lot of the news media people do the same thing. You see, that's mainstream. And of course, all along with that is the nakedness and the fornication that we see in our in our land. And this is where Jesus said, This is where thou dwellest. This is where thou dwellest. The word dwellest there has the idea of a house permanently. This is where they lived, with no means of living. So what he's saying here is, I know where you dwell. I know the trials and temptations that you face. And he knows where we dwell. This is how it was at Corinth. Go to to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And he wrote to Corinth. Paul wrote to Corinth. Under the inspiration of the Spirit of God in 1 Corinthians 10, and warned them and encouraged them about this, and used the nation of Israel as an example. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 6. Now these things were our examples, to the intent we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Neither be ye idolaters, as were some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication, as some of them committed. Fell in one day, three and twenty thousand. Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured and, and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now all these things happened unto them for in samples, and they are written for our admonition, on whom the ends of the world are come. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed, lest he fall. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that me, ye may be able to bear it. Wherefore, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. See, the source of all this temptation is idolatry. What preceded their fornication and then being destroyed of the destroyer was, it says, now, these things 
were out written uh, these things these things were our example to the intent that we should not lust after evil things. So they began to desire the things of the world. The children of Israel weren't satisfied with the manna, the things that God provided. And they began to lust after the things of the world. And what followed was their fornication with the world. So, and, and so he, he, Paul says here, you know, there's no some te- temptation taking you. It's not new. It's not new to you. The temptation is not new to you. That's what the children of Israel went through. And some of them endured it, and some did not. See, we have to keep our focus on the Lord and be content with what he gives us. That's the key. Hebrews 13, 5 and 6 says, Let your conversation be without covetousness, and be content with such things as ye have. He has said, I will not forsake thee. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man should do unto me. See, we need to be, learn to be content with what we have. And not lust after the things of the world. The things of the world will never satisfy you anyway. They're only temporary. And so he said, I know. I know where you dwell. And I know the temptations. The allurements. The trials that you face. Of course, we have a high priest that can be touched with the feelings of our infirmities because he was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. So uh, he knows our dwelling place. Thirdly, he gives us a challenge to be faithful. And notice in verse 13, he says, I know thy works and where thou dwellest, where safety is, thou holdest, and thou holdest fast my name and hast not denied my faith, even in those days where an Antipas was my faithful martyr who is slain among you where Satan dwelleth. So there's a challenge here to be faithful. He says to hold fast. That word hold fast there means to not discard or let go. To keep carefully and faithfully. And he gives an example of this, holding fast, Antipas, who some believe to have been the pastor and the first martyr of the Roman Empire. You know, emperor worship had been commanded by Rome by this time, and Pergamos, being a capital city, it would have been an easy target for this thing. You know, if they start taking guns, they're not going to start at Youngsville. No, they're going to start at Raleigh and the big places. You know, so being a capital city, this is where they would have really started targeted. And Antipas, actually, his name means against all. You see, in the message is to us, we need to hold to all the truths of the word of God and stand against all forms of compromise. He was an example of faithfulness. He was a faithful martyr. The word martyr is actually the same word that's translated witness in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He was a faithful, we could say he was a faithful witness. He was faithful unto death, faithful to the truth of the word of God. He would not change. He would not just offer a little incense once a year and then be able to do what he wanted else the rest of the year. Serve the Lord the rest of the year. It doesn't work that way. You can't serve God and mammon, Jesus said. You know, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15, 
Paul told the church at Thessalonica, Therefore, brethren, stand fast. Hold the traditions you have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. So we're challenged to stand fast. You know, in these days in which we live, we need to stand fast. There is much compromise. But then he notice the fourth thing, the correction needed. Nurses 14 and 15. And there's two things here, and we'll, look, we'll divide them up. First of all, there's the doctrine of Balaam, verse 14. But I have a few things against thee, because thou, they are them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block for the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. Now, the doctrine of Balaam is an interesting thing. And it, he says there's two things here, eat, eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit fornication. And so let's go to Numbers chapter 25 and, and verses 1 through 9. One, Numbers 25, 1 through 9. <clears throat> and, and we get here, I believe, the doctrine of Balaam in the Old Testament. In Numbers chapter 25, of course, Balak, king of Moab, had sent and hired Balaam, a uh, prophet for hire, to come and curse Israel. And, of course, he offered him a great reward for that. But God wouldn't allow him to curse Israel. He couldn't curse God's people. So instead of cursing God's people, he taught Balak how to seduce God's people. In 25, Numbers 25, verse 1, it says, And Israel bowed in Shittim, and the people began to commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab. And they called the people unto the sacrifices. That is, Moab called the people unto the sacrifices of their gods, and the people did eat and bowed down to their gods. And Israel joined himself unto Baal Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said unto Moses, Take all the heads of the people and hang them up before the Lord against the sun, that the fierce anger of the Lord may be turned away from Israel. And Moses said unto the judges of Israel, Slay every one his men that were joined unto Baal Peor. And behold, one of the children of Israel came and brought unto his brethren a Midianitish woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the children of Israel who were weeping before the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And then Phinehas, the son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron the priest, saw it. He rose up from among the congregation, took a javelin in his hand, and went after the man of Israel into the tent and thrust both of them through the man of Israel and the woman through her belly. So the plague was stayed from the children of Israel and those that died in the plague were 20 and 4 thousand. So the doctrine of Balaam, by the way, Baal Peor is a god of immorality. Um, their priests, I was reading a little bit about this today, their priests, women priests would dress up as men and their male priests would dress up as women. Does that sound familiar? Transgenderism. Often, their women, uh, he is pictured as a naked woman or something else that I won't describe to you. A naked woman. And so, Balaam taught Balak how to seduce the men of Israel with the women of Moab. And there's two things he mentions. In fact, you know, if you look in Numbers 31, verse 16, that's what Moses said, that Balaam taught. That's, that's where that idea comes from, that Balaam taught this. Uh, Numbers 1, 16, Behold these, 
caused the children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to commit trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor, and there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. So it was Balaam who taught this, how to seduce, taught Moab how to seduce the men of Israel. And it, it, there were two things involved in this, eating things sacrificed to idols. So this was the idea to get the men to participate and attend Moab's riotous and gluttonous feats of idolatry. And again, go back to, to uh, uh, what we just read in, in, in uh, 1 Corinthians, and it said they lusted after things. They lusted. And the things we know they lusted after were the leeks and the garlics and the fish and the things of Egypt, the meat of Egypt. Because they were tired of the man. They weren't content with the things that God had. So here's an opportunity to get what we want. To satisfy their flesh. And so they were enticed to attend these feasts of idolatry. And such feasts were usually held in the temples of their gods and led to scenes of dissipation and corruption. And so what you have with the church at Pergamos is those who were mixing with other religions and their practices for sake of social acceptance and community. Some were participating. It also involved fornication. Verses 6 through 9 of Numbers says, Behold, one of the children of Israel came and brought unto the his brethren, a Midianitish woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the children of Israel, who were weeping before the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And when Phinehas, the son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose up from among the congregation, took a javelin in his hand. He went after the man in, of Israel into the tent and thrust both of them through the, woman, the man of Israel and the woman through her belly. So the plague was stayed from the children of Israel. So, uh, so they, the Moab used the women to seduce the men of Israel. You'll get them to the feast. Food and drink would flow freely with scantily clad women or completely unclad women. Many commentators believe that the woman that this man brought was completely nude into the camp of Israel. What a recipe for fornication. You know, James chapter 4, verse 4. James 4, 4 says, The friendship, the adulteresses, or adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God. Whoso therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. And when we adopt the practices of the world, the worship styles of the world, the marketing techniques of the world, we become spiritual fornicators. Because we have adulterated the truth. We've compromised it. <laughs> when I was in pastoring in Maine, one of the things that was in the drawer of the desk when I got there was some cassette tapes on Jack Howe's teaching soul winning at Bob Jones University back in the 80s, I think it was. And at the end of it, he said this, that Electrolux contacted him and asked him to teach a class on salesmanship. Nevertheless, I didn't keep the tapes. 
and I didn't let, give them to anybody else either. I threw them away. But anyway, you know, the gospel is not something we can market or sell. It is not marketable. In fact, one man said, to make it marketable, you have to change its message. But many today have been drawn into this, and it's spiritual fornication. They use worldly techniques to try and sell the gospel. That's what CCM is. It's an effort to sell the gospel, to attract them with their music. Just put some Christian words to it. They want that dancey beat. And you see them in their churches when they're singing, and they're going like this. Why is that? You know what that is. That's fornication movements. In fact, I heard one guy say that in Bible times, if you'd have played that kind of music, there would have been fornication. Because that's what it meant. It's gimmicks. A gimmick, of course, a gimmick, gimmicks have been used for 40, 50 years now. Pretty uh, 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 continuously in many Baptist churches. But it's a trick or a device intended to attract attention, publicity, or business. Uh and I, a couple of articles here. One, one person said this. Uh, you know, he had seven reasons, seven reasons pastors should use gimmicks. The office, number one, the office of the pastor is one of dignity and honor. It's hard to semblance of dignity and honor when the pastor cutting off his tie for high school attendance Sunday, painting his hair pink to the highest highlight breast cancer awareness, or putting on his own version of fear factor to add an extra Lukey Lou or two in the pews. Pie in the face was night and water tradition for many church years in when which kids with the most merit can throw a whipped cream pie in the face of an all one leader they choose. He said, I made myself the exception. It wasn't about being dirty. I was covered I've covered myself with manure working for church members in calving season or blood while helping church members butcher deer. I've covered my legs in grass while trimming the church lawn. Not afraid of being dirty. My fear is that church children learn how to show Pastors, even by slamming a pie in their face. Number uh, six, uh, what you attract people with is what you will keep them with. And part of it says here, if you attract people with gimmickry, it'll take gimmickry to keep them. It starts with eating cockroaches. Next thing you know, the pastor's riding a motorcycle into the sanctuary and shooting midgets out of cannons. The pastor is not your dancing monkey. Um, number five, the duty of church discipleship is to requires sober-mindedness. Sober-mindedness. Number four, lost people don't really think it's cool. They think it's desperate. When Greg Locke gave away a television recently to get people to church, he said the Bible instructs Christians, quote, to do whatever it takes to reach people, unquote. No, the Bible does not say that anywhere. The Bible does not teach bribery as an evangelism method. And frankly, lost people don't think it's awesome to see a pastor on a zip line or a stripper pole in the sanctuary to highlight a sermon about better love lives. Lost people think it's lame. It's the pastor's job to fill the pulpits, not the pulpit, not the pews. The pastor's primary job is preaching and teaching the Bible. God's people will naturally be drawn to that. 
The devil's people will be drawn to lights, lasers, and shiny objects. Uh, there's no time for gimmicks. You know, he says it's for, the, it's for the singing and preaching of the word of God. And then he says there's no example of gimmickry in the New Testament. Uh, and one, one man said this, Splashy strategies you've not heard of the gospel is compromised. Is not compromised, Mason said. However, what a church draws does to draw people, it tends to have to keep doing to keep them. Mason thinks that doctrinal preaching can still can be a successful outreach tool and said he's adapted his own sermons to include more humor and stories. He said he wants listeners to remember and apply the gospel to their lives, not feel browbeaten. Um, you know, some of the things that, that have been used recently, you know, where was that? Um, you know, preacher ate a cockroach. Uh, preacher lived in a cherry picker to collect frozen turkeys. And, and uh, the preacher zoomed into a pulpit on a zip line to illustrate the return of Christ. Well, I saw that one on television the other day. Uh, you know, there's all kinds of things, you know. They used to pull power trucks with your teeth and and um, of course they have the world's strongest man going around breaking breaking basketball baseball bats and concrete blocks and and you know all kinds of things like that just to draw people it's gimmicks it's using the world's method and you know what I've noticed the churches that use that stuff have long since departed from the truth of the gospel, are now full-blown contemporary. It's spiritual fornication. And one thing we have to remember about all this is, it, is this. The Moabites were powerless against Israel until Israel opened the door through their sin. See, Balaam couldn't curse Israel. But what he taught Balak to do was seduce them so that God would judge them because of their compromise. God won't put up with it. He won't tolerate it. If you notice in verse 16, he says, Repent or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. So there are some in the church that are holding these doctrines. He said, if, if they don't repent of this, I'm going to fight against them. Go to James chapter 4 again. James chapter 4. James teaches this also. James chapter 4 and verse 4. The adulterers and adulteresses know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Do you think that the scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth in thee? But he giveth more grace, wherefore he say, saith, notice this, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. God resisteth the proud. And, and I, was, I heard one preacher say one time, that really means that God dresses up in battle array and goes to war against you. If you resist him, if you compromise the truth of the word of God, God is going to go to war against you. And that's what he says here. If you don't repent, I'm going to fight against you. I'm going to fight against you. 
So they had the doctrine of Balaam. They also had the doctrine of the Lycanlaetanes. And you know, the interesting thing to me is, my observation is that these kind of things go hand in hand. Now, we noticed that from two weeks ago, the Nicolaitans means, has the idea of an exaltation of clergy or priestly class. Exalting the pastors or the bishops over the people. Sort of like they were above everybody else and they were exempt from certain things that everybody else was held accountable to. And we see this in Baptist churches where pastors get off the hook for things they should be forced to resign for. Just like the Catholic priests. Same thing. You know, this doctrine became very pronounced and clear when Constantine embraced Christianity and made it state religion. And this is really what it is. It's a, it's, it's, it's a system of control over God's people that God never intended for pastors or anyone to have. It's an elite class that bears rule over the people, exercising all power, even power they claim to forgive sin or not to forgive sin. The Catholic Church says there's no salvation outside our church. Since when did salvation come from a church? It doesn't. John very clearly tells us in John 1 that it's not of the will of man. It's of God. Salvation is of God, not of a man. No man can give it to you and no man can keep it from you. I don't care if he calls himself the potentate or the pope or the vicar of Christ. He's the vicar of hell. But a lot of Baptist preachers act like it too. Not all of them call themselves Baptists. I remember there was a guy who was an evangelist, and he had, seems like he had control over some churches, and I ran with that crap. It's actually where I went to school. He was the president of where I went to school, and everybody called him president, except me. I didn't know why everybody called him president. I guess I was just naive. I didn't stay there too long either. But, but anyway, and he would, he would tell this guy, you go here and pastor this church, and you go here and pastor this church. I'm thinking, something wrong with this. Now, I didn't have this all figured out back then. But there's something wrong with this. There's no such thing taught in the Bible as Baptist popes. God hates it. God hates it. So these clergy, and it appears, you know, from what's being taught here, that these clergy were compromising with Rome and being, and, 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 you know, we know this actually did come to full fruition then through Constantine, but they compromising with Rome and being given favored status and power. You know, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 2.17, For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as of God, in the sight of God, speak we in Christ. And in 3 John, verses 9 and 10, John speaks, addresses this very thing and, and calls the man out who was exercising lord, lordship over the church. Uh, he was being a lord over the church. In verse 9 of 3 John, he says, I wrote unto the church, but Diotrephes, who loved 
of the preeminence among them receiveth us not. Wherefore, if I come, I will remember his deeds which he doeth, prating against us with malicious words, and not content therewith. Neither doth he himself receive the brethren, and forbiddeth them that would, and casteth them out of the church. So here was a, I don't know if he was a pastor or what he was, but he was being a lord over this church. He wanted the preeminence. He wanted the authority that didn't belong to him. And God says, I hate it. I hate it. This state church system and this hierarchy and and, and even Baptist preachers who, who want to control other preachers or who preachers basically worship is a stench to God. It's covering up of their sin. But then he gives a final encouragement to the faithful. Notice in verse 17. There, so, so what you had in this church were some who were going to this, these, these doctors of Balaam, doctor of, the, of uh, Nicolaitans, and you still had a faithful remnant. He says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh, Will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and a stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, being he that receiveth. So again, he that hath an ear, let him hear. You know, even those who are participating in the doctrine of Balaam and the doctrine of Laetanes, he says, you need to have an ear to hear. Hear what the Spirit saith. And if you will overcome, if you will forsake these things, he says, I'll give you to eat of the hidden manna. Now, think a little bit with me. These people, this church, was where, is dwelling where Satan's seat is. And that tells me that it was very difficult to maintain um, status or to maintain work or to survive in this environment and be true to the truths of the word of God. Antipas gave his life doing it. So sometimes it may mean to be in dire straits. As we noticed in Smyrna, he said, I know thy poverty. And so when he says, but I'll give you the hidden manna, the hidden manna, I think it's, an, it's a promise that the Lord will supply our needs. The word hidden means is equivalent to be hid or to escape notice. Has the idea of something kept laid up with God in heaven. Of course, manna symbolizes the angel's food or the, the food of the blessed. And uh, you know, it's a promise that God would supply their needs. You know, God fed Israel 40 years in the wilderness. He fed Elijah by the ravens with the widow woman's constantly near empty barrel of meal and bottle of oil. He, spent, he fed John the Baptist with locusts and wild honey. The psalmist said in Psalm 37 verse 25, I have been young and now I'm old, yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 25, 
take no thought for your life. What you shall eat, what you shall drink, or what you shall wear. Your Heavenly Father knoweth you have need of all these things. I think an example of this was John Brent's. During the Protestant Reformation, John Brent's incurred the wrath of the king. And word was sent that king's soldiers were coming to arrest him. And he went to the Lord in prayer, and the Lord seemed to say, Go out in the street and find the first open door and enter therein and hide thyself. So he went out in the street and walked down the street and came to a barn with the door open. He went in through that open door, hid in the loft. And for seven days, the king's soldiers searched the street looking for John Brent's. And every day, a chicken came up into that loft, laid an egg without cackling. And the eighth day, she didn't come. And John Brent's heard the people in the street say, they're gone. See, God can supply our needs. I don't know if you know what you know about chickens, but when chickens lay eggs, they make a lot of noise. See, God can still send you a chicken or a raven. He can supply our needs even in our even in difficult circumstances. But turn to the second thing here. The Lord will also provide confidence and assurance. Notice it says, not only will I give him a hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth. Now, this white stone, I'm going to give an interpretation. Go to 1 Peter chapter 2. I believe the stone refers to the Lord Jesus, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. 1 Peter 2 and verse 6 it says, Wherefore also does it contain in the scripture, Behold and lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious. And he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. So when he says here, I'll give you a white stone. It is a stone a new name written. I believe that refers to our name written in heaven. But the word confounded in Peter means to be put to shame who suffers a repulse or of whom some hope has deceived does not disappoint. So, you know, when we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, when we trust Him as that sure foundation, and we hold fast to Him, hold fast to the rock, O Lord Jesus Christ, we will not be disappointed. We will not be confused. We will not be cast down. We will have discernment and wisdom to do right, confidence in the truth, that the Lord will give us that the world cannot discredit. You know, the Bible says of Samuel, the Lord let none of his words fall to the ground. You see, the children of Israel on that day had lost all respect for the priests because of Hophni and Phinehas. They despised the sacrifice of the Lord because of these two wicked priests. When Samuel, little Samuel came along and Samuel became a man and he started teaching the children of Israel, the Bible says the Lord let none of his words fall to the ground. See, Samuel wasn't confused or disappointed. They couldn't discredit him. They could discredit Hophni and Phinehas. And rightly so. 
Look at Luke chapter 21. Luke chapter 21. Luke 21, verse 12, speaking about the last days, says, But before all these, they shall lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to synagogues and into prisons, being brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. And it shall turn to you for a testimony. Settle therefore in your hearts not to meditate before what you shall answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries shall not be able to gainsay nor resist. You see, the Lord says, if you have ears to hear, and you hear what the Spirit says to the churches, I'll give you a stone. You put your confidence in the rock, the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll not be confounded. You'll not be discredited. They won't be able to... Even though, you know, you know, it will give you confidence and boldness in the day of censure or judgment, and you will not be ashamed or embarrassed because you'll have an answer for every man of the reason of the hope that lieth within you with meekness and fear. You know, there, there were those who were compromising that were giving a confusing message. You know, when we compromise the truth of the word of God, what message does the world get? It's confused. It's confused. Sort of like the lady who said to me, how can we know what the Bible is? They all say something different. See, compromises causes the world to be confused. But when we stand for the truth, there's clarity. There's clarity. And God will give us that clarity if we will be faithful, if we will hear what the Spirit saith, if we will allow the Spirit of God to direct our lives, to control our lives, like faithful Antipas. Being against all the world, He was faithful. See, this is a church that was tolerating evil. But it was a church also that had compromised their message to the world. You know, we want to be a church. We need to be a church. Clear message to the world. You know, that's attractive to some. But when they realize they decide they don't want that after all. But we need to be faithful and allow the Lord to build his church and not compromise the truths of the word of God. Let's pray.